Welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line and even below below uh, the line, looking at the movers and shakers and the, and the movie makers of uh, film and television. Uh, and we even delve into music at times and literature and stage. But for the most part, we're looking at films and we're looking at the people who make those films. And very excited about today's show. A guest that I don't, ta- I don't get to talk to this man often enough. He is an incredible documentarian, among many other things. Bill Haney is joining us at the midpoint of the show to talk about his new film, Jim Allison Breakthrough. Jim Allison is a scientist who received the Nobel Peace, the Nobel Award uh, in medicine last year for discovering a cure for cancer. Uh, his story is an amazing story. Jim Allison is, uh, he's not what you'd expect. He's a harmonica-playing, fun-loving guy who is who has spent his entire adult life obsessed with finding a cure for cancer after losing his mother to cancer when he was only 11 years old. Um, Bill Haney always tells powerful stories uh, and does it in a very intimate way, a very relatable way. And I think this is one of his finest. Um, you may know his prior works, The Last Mountain, which he did... Uh, in conjunction with Robert uh, Kennedy Jr., or The Price of Sugar, which took a look at the sugarcane workers uh, down in the island, in the Dominican, Cuba, uh, and the island areas off of Florida. Uh, that was the first time I had a chance to ever talk, to, uh, sit down and talk with Bill. And that's been 12 years. Uh, so I'm really looking for, and I did speak with him about Last Mountain. And then his producing partner, Tim Disney, visited us not too long ago talking about his film, William. Uh, And it makes perfect sense when you realize what Bill Haney does. He also serves as CEO of Dragonfly Therapeutics, which is involved in cancer research, and Skyhawk Therapeutics, uh, of which Merck Merck Sharpen Dome is a partner, and they create molecules that correct uh, ribonucleic acid RNA splicing. And that RNA concept is part of what's in that film, William. So it made perfect sense to me that Bill Haney and Tim Disney would have done that film. But when Bill joins us, we're going to talk about Bill Allison Breakthrough. Very excited to have uh, him joining us. Jim Allison Breakthrough. Very excited to have Bill joining us today. Um, For those of you that don't know it yet, new Frozen 2 trailer dropped this morning. So be on the lookout. Um, I got the email while I was driving to the studio, so it is not out on BehindTheLensOnline.net as of yet. Uh, But it will be later today. And also, if you didn't watch the Emmy Awards yesterday and you were looking at moseying around the Internet, and based on the overnight ratings, you probably were not watching the Emmy Awards yesterday. It is the lowest-rated Emmy Awards in Emmy history. Um... And I hate to say it, but deservedly so, because the show really was beyond lackluster. But you want you want to pre-order? You want to pre-order your Disney Plus? 
Go to DisneyPlus.com and you can do that now. Uh, for $6.99 a month or $69.99 for an entire year. You can pre-order it as of right now so that your streaming service will start on November 12th. But if you're looking for that $12.99 package that includes Hulu with ads and ESPN, you can't pre-order that yet. That you have to wait to November 12th for. But if you're just looking for Disney Plus and you want to jump in there and see The Mandalorian on November 12th, Go ahead to DisneyPlus.com with plus spelled out, DisneyPlus.com. You can jump right on in there now and pre-order. I did. Uh, so, but in addition to having Bill Haney join us today, we are finally going to hear uh, my exclusive interview with Larry Fessenden talking about Depraved, which is a hot new release on the VOD circuit. Um, it's, people are raving. It is getting rave reviews from, from critics and from film goers alike. It is, as I've mentioned in the past, it is a modern day, 21st century take on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's gorgeous. The cinematography is beautiful. The color is rich and saturated. It's polished. There's a polish to it, which belies the guttural nature of the viciousness of the actions of two of, shall we say, antagonists. Uh, Henry, played by David Call, and Polidori, played by the incomparable Joshua Leonard. Um, there's wonderful metaphoric dichotomy. It is, and Larry Fessenden also does his own editing. So it's sharp, it's gorgeous, there's some beautiful animation in here. Uh, and then you've got an outstanding performance by Alex Bro as the creation, Adam. Um, the moral, I, I've, said, I've said this before, uh, this is the most visually and emotionally expressive film that Larry Fessenden has ever done as a director. There's an elegance to the visual effects, and it's buttressed by a haunting score that is beauteous. Uh, this is the real deal. Larry hasn't given us anything as a director for quite some time. Been well, much as, uh, much as with Mel Gibson and Hacksaw Ridge. Um, absence does make the heart grow fonder, but for whatever reason, it can make some filmmakers soar to greater heights, and that's what happens with Larry Fessenden. So, without any further ado... We're gonna. This will not conclude before Bill Haney calls. I just want to let you know that up front. Uh, this is a 30-minute interview. Bill's due to call in about another 22 minutes. Uh, and because he's on a tight schedule, we're going to cut right to Bill when he calls in. So, but for right now, take a listen. Larry Fessenden talking depraved. Hey, Debbie, how are you? Well, I'm so tickled to be talking to you again. It's been a while, my friend. Yeah, well, here we are. Larry, this is the best film you've ever done. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> I, well, that's nice to hear. I mean, seriously, with from the script to the direction to your editing, this is, it's the most thought-provoking, intellectually stimulating film, visually and emotionally expressive. It is incredible. Well, let's put that on the poster. I'll tell you. Yes, put it on the poster. 
Put it on the post. You outdid yourself here. Cool. Well, I worked on it for quite a while, and it's very intuitive to tell this story and uh, try to address a lot of pent-up, uh, you know, artistic impulses and thematic impulses. So I had a lot of fun with it. I'm glad it translated for you. Well, it's something that you do here, you've got great subtextual commentary happening here. Greed, power, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, the study of the heart of a man, man's humanity or lack thereof. What really is the horror? Is it the monster that Henry has made, that Henry and Polidori have made? Or is it man as a whole? You set up these great, great themes and deep issues that you think about long after the film ends. I have never seen this from you before. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I mean, it's tickling at the sides, of course. You know, my film, Wendigo, is about uh, class struggle and our need for mythology and religion. So it's uh, all my films have a sort of a lofty Mm-hmm. premise, even though I love, you know, just a spooky monster story, and so uh, I think that's what I always try to do. Obviously, the last winter is about climate change and science and and capitalism, but it's also uh, a ghost story. So I try to do that blend, and Frankenstein is such a potent myth that uh, it all comes bubbling out. The other thing is... Uh, I don't make a lot of movies, so I have a lot of pent-up uh, themes and and things that I want to convey and great passion for uh, the way that uh, life seems unfair and lonely and violent and, uh, and yet, you know, so much opportunity for beauty. And so I like to uh, put everything in the kitchen sink in my film. When mm-hmm. I get to make one, it's going to be overflowing. <laughs> yeah, because I think the last one that you did directing uh, was Beneath, and that was that was back in 2013. Uh, so it's yeah, and I had a lot of fun with that. Even that movie, which was uh, from another person's script, you know, I saw the, the the metaphor in it of a bunch of kids being terrorized by a natural phenomenon, and they couldn't agree on how to how to save themselves. So I always saw that as a metaphor for uh, our Congress. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very uh, applicable so it, yet today. <laughs> well, yeah, it's worse than ever. But anyway, I do see, uh, I think the great thing about horror tales is uh, there's uh, real truth in them. And without preaching, you can um, stimulate people to think about the human condition through, you know, a story that's got a, a monster or something spooky going on. That's just the way I like to serve up these ideas. You know, how did you, when you sat down and you started writing this, um, going beyond the fact this is an interpretation of Shelley we haven't seen before, be it on the page or on the screen, big or small, but how did you go about conceptualizing your visual look? Because your visuals are so key here and they're actually with your editing and the VFX you have, with the dissolves, the superimpositions, um, the way that you use the animation to depict the synapses 
firing and connecting the more that Adam learns or the hallucinogenic fat amoebas, as I like to call them, that are the day glow green and blue. It is, it's an explosion. We've got an explosion of color here and creativity that really speaks directly to your mind as a filmmaker and also to what each of us should be experiencing is at just like Adam experiences it, learning at every at every possible moment. So I'm curious how you develop that whole visual design that you've got happening. Well, I've always been preoccupied with the idea that the brain is how we interpret life, and I'm intrigued by the subjectivity of life, which is why our politics are broken because everybody's coming to reality from their own filter. So that lends itself, the Frankenstein story lends itself to that sort of um, observation. And then I just wanted to sort of put on screen the experience of being alive and how the brain is really uh, interpreting uh, the world around us. And once again, it's so fun because uh, the Frankenstein story deals with the brain transplant. Of course, that wasn't Mary Shelley's notion, but that's where we uh, go to the universal pictures with uh, the, you know, the brain being put into the the wrong, the criminal brain being put into the uh, monster's head. So it feels like a way to talk about existential reality that life really is about how our neurons fire, and uh, if you have a brain transplant, you know, the synapses have to reconnect. Um, so all of that you want to do visually. And, you know, the original script was more preoccupied with the subjectivity in terms of following one character who then gets killed and wakes up as another character and just um, passing the narrative baton from one character to another. But then when I got into post-production, I really wanted to further convey uh, what was going on in uh, Adam's mind. So I came up with this scheme of this layering all different realities, like you described. You know, the neurons are the literal thing, so we did some animations of, of that going on. But then also, um, you know, when you close your eyes and you see those shapes, mm -hmm. Uh, phenomes, I think they're called, but it's fun to just, like, I feel sometimes in films, we're so involved with the narrative that we forget these fundamental things of, like, how uh, people are are functioning, and it just, and, and sort of reducing reality to the, the physical world, and to sort of remind people of the richness of, of just simple life. Mm -hmm. Again, that's what's so fun about the Frankenstein story because it lends itself to these themes without being overbearing. It's in fact in the DNA of the story. Just, you know, each somebody is given life. So how do you kind of convey that emotionally and visually? And that's something that you, that you bring in with your actors, with the performances that we get. Uh, Alex Bro, you just really knocked it out of the park casting him as Adam, in addition to his physicality and his agility that he brings, thanks to having played Harvard football, Harvard football to a Larry Fessenden film, 
okay, there's there's got to be something happening there. I'm not sure of the connective tissue there, but <laughs> but there's something. But what we see, and Alex is able to bring this great introspective and thoughtful look to his face at the same time, bringing us the physical uh, interpretation with the fragility and the tentativeness as he grows and works. And it's those simple things, the blocks, putting the blocks together in the puzzle on the floor. And it's a great reminder, it's a visual reminder about the beauty of the simplicity of things sometimes. And you just, you capture that so well. And with that casting, I mean, you just did an amazing job. Well, Alex, uh, I appreciate the emphasis you're putting on the film. You know, it's really about wonderment mm-hmm. and the innocence of, of life and the perplexity of, like, memories that you can't quite trace. So there's a tremendous sense through the beginning of the film that I just wanted to convey, like, a, a sense of awe at being alive and what are these feelings I'm having and visuals. At the same time, he's very absent and shut down um, as he's sort of trying to reconnect to the world. And, of course, the tragedy of the film is that when he does reconnect, he starts feeling the the aggression and the contradictions in his elders' uh, struggle with the world, and, and it starts to corrupt him and uh, make him feel desperate. So it's really a, you know, a coming-of-age story. But Alex Bro was just the right um, artisan for this immersive work. He's very thoughtful, um, and he does come at it from uh, an athlete's perspective. Uh, in terms of the training and the precision and the, the physical dedication uh, to the ideas of the movie. Uh, but then he's also, he took a career path where he veered into acting. So he's still very uh, reverential of this choice that he's made in his life. You know, he was going to get into financing and he was in uh, fancy school doing that. So he's a very specific kind of person. He's appreciative of this life choice to become an actor. He's got the discipline of a uh, of an athlete, and uh, and then he has the physicality, just a very unusual profile. Mm-hmm. So I felt that he already um, uh, had this the same uh, sculptural elements that made Karloff so fantastic in the uh, original makeup, uh, never forget that it's not just the flathead, it's all the other features that mm-hmm. Carl had, and that's why that director chose him. So Bro was a, a fantastic combination of all these things, it was, and he stuck with the project for a couple of years. Wow. But And then you throw in David Paul as Henry, and David just, here again, that idea of wonderment, you know, we've got the ebullience that turns into frustration and anger and then freneticism and panic. But his the initial ebullience, ebullience and energy of, you know, look what I've done. Isn't this incredible? Uh, so that's a different kind of wonder, but it's still very relatable. Um, and it's really fascinating to watch what David brings to that role. I, I agree, and you know, 
uh, I feel that uh, there's a, a um, an idealist in his character. There's an idealist who wanted to save lives and do the right thing and felt frustrated by the wars in uh, the Mideast where he served and served well, but he just felt he couldn't control uh, the outcome. And so he comes back very damaged and he's influenced by uh, Polidori. Um, but I, I love that you see that in, in David's performance, this sort of awe at the creature. I don't think he really thought that the monster would come alive and then he's sort of um, shackled with this moral obligation to raise the, the sentient being. But um, uh, he brought a great deal to it. David's brother is uh, in the military and so David felt a real kinship to that aspect of Henry's character, which of course is something I added because I wanted to see where would this incredible extreme talent come in this ability to bring people back to life you know in a version situation mm-hmm. and of course and of course then you bring in one of my all-time favorites the beloved joshua as polidori and nobody could have played this role but for joshua with the elocution the vocal cadence the posture the erudite mannerisms the pomposity um, it, it is just delicious. This is this role is perfection for Josh. I agree. He has that, uh, uh, as you say, that erudite quality. He's obviously a very smart person, more than just an actor. I know he aspires to. Uh, he's directed a few movies, and he's just a very thoughtful, funny, uh, and caustic wit. So he was just right for for the role. We worked together in the past, so it was great to bring him on. I had complete confidence he would get the nuance of Polidori, who is both a broken man and but who, um, you know, uh, projects confidence and arrogance. And I think that's very much um, a comment on, on society today, that some of the people who are in positions of power are really faking it, and I thought that Josh was able to convey the hurt underneath the bully. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it, that's the facade that we see that that Henry has, that Polidori has, the only one without a facade here with the purity and innocence is actually Adam, and I love that dichotomy amongst yeah. this triumvirate that you've put together here. It's really so interesting to just study them and watch them. I only watched this film three times already, Larry. <laughs> I'm impressed. Well, you clearly know it. You, you speak of someone who's seen it more than once. I really appreciate the depth uh, with which you responded because uh, that's what one hopes. You know, it, it works just as a as a sort of a Frankenstein retread, but then hopefully there's other ideas to mine. Oh, there's so much, so much beyond that. I'm curious as to the benefits because the bulk of this film takes place in one set, in that loft, and I have to commend your production designer, April Lasky. Yeah. I I knew April's work from what she did on Unsane, that Joshua right. was also in, but uh, that whole set design of that loft is so intriguing. 
how beneficial is that to you as a filmmaker, as a director, when you're making a film like Depraved, that the bulk of this is all going to play out in one setting, but at the same time, you've got to vary everything up so the visuals remain fresh and engaging. Well, exactly, and, uh, you know, for years before making the film, I had conceived of this loft space and, and the different sort of areas, and you slowly, the monster, uh, sort of busts through one doorway to get to a hallway and then bust through that doorway to get to uh, another room and the idea of his sort of expanding uh, consciousness and awareness of the greater world. You know, if you have cats, you always, they live in the apartment and then they get to go into the hallway and they're like, this is crazy, the world just gets bigger. So um, I had lived with the design and the ideas of that location and the way that I made the movie is that I just rented the space and started building it with the very crew members who eventually um, uh, shot the movie. So it was a very intimate family affair, and we just constructed literally brick by brick and window by window that fake wall. So it was always part of the conceit to have almost like this um, old Hollywood studio atmosphere in which to make the majority of the film. So it was really important, every detail, every prop. And I'm trying to indicate just all the detritus, you know, that uh, that comes with us and comes with society, just every manner of old uh, book and prop and, you know, musical instrument and computer screens and just all that stuff stuffed in there. And that's the, the great burden that we're carrying as a society, all this history. And so the movie's about memory and objects have memory. So, you know, the set was very important. Um, and April came in, and she was able to put uh, the finishing touches and help dress it. And, you know, it just took a lot of ingenuity at no budget to uh, create these different rooms as I as I had pictured them. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the great, you... The great sandbox to work in. And then, of course, you counter that with the rich, old-moneyed, storied uh, country estate home that Polidori is in. And... Exactly. Another beautiful, beautiful visual and metaphoric contrast to the themes within the film. Um, did you find a house as is for that? Or I was just incredibly lucky. You know, I was looking at mansions on uh, the east side of the Hudson. There's a couple of fantastic mansions upstate, and I got in touch with people. And one of the problems is I always say the movie's called Depraved, and they <laughs> recoil. And then I suddenly realized that six miles from my house upstate, uh, my friends have this fantastic uh, modern house where they have weddings and, you know, they have a bed and breakfast. And I just realized, oh, my God, I'll have to call Bob. <laughs> he, he said, sure, you can film here. Uh, so it was just one of those inspirations as an independent filmmaker is always about trying to think as hard as you can about what's right in front of your nose, you know, you're yearning for something that's out of reach, uh, and then you just go, oh my God, I have a friend with a house that looks like a rich person's house that happens. <laughs> uh, that's what so it's an absolutely fantastic, and you know, he's an old showbiz guy, he used to do theater in New York, so he understood the mission. Oh. So welcoming. It was 
all those things are how you make independent films, low-budget films, is by finding the right collaborators who get the mission. Well, one collaborator that I'm thrilled, thrilled that you brought in here, you got Will Bates to do the score. I am a, I'm a big admirer of Will. As a matter of fact, I just heard his score that he did for The Sound of Silence. And he, yeah. he has such a gift with bringing something that is haunting yet melodic and beautiful. Yes, Will really got this story. You know, his mother and father were actors in the British film industry. They were uh, uh, his father played Frankenstein the doctor in a movie. So he has sort of a intuitive understanding of this genre. We had worked on Beneath together mm -hmm. and we'd had we'd had a really good collaboration. With this one, we barely even spoke. He understood it so well. Of course I gave him lots of temp music and things that had inspired me. I gave him lots of notes. We talked about the light motifs how the scenes could relate to each other and how I saw the sort of underworkings of the movie. Um, and then, honestly, he went from there, and he knows that I like eccentric musicianship and unusual instruments, and mm -hmm. he created this um, audio landscape that I, I'm so enamored with. And uh, it was just a tremendous pleasure and a funny uh, collaboration because it was so unspoken, so much of it. I love that you mentioned the, the how you love his instrumentation because instrumentation, I am just so enamored with it, within what instrumentation and then orchestral arrangement does and brings to a score. And here, there is some unique instrumentation that I'm picking up, and it just coincides so beautifully with the idea of mix-and-match body parts of a Frankenstein. Exactly. I mean, there really are some unusual sounds in there and he you know if you ever go to his studio it's filled with odd boxes and trinkets and bells and instruments from all over the world that he's collected just at a local flea market or something the other thing i'm deeply endeared to about will is he plays the saxophone which is my instrument as well so i'm always welcoming uh the saxophone into his uh scores and it's just a beautiful throaty uh instrument he puts on a couple of them so there's a sort of a choral grandiosity mm -hmm. that's sort of a sound you don't hear in most uh, orchestral pieces so yeah it's, it's just a great fun to hear what he comes up with i mean i i'm partial to the french horn which we don't hear enough you got to go <laughs> back to the days of herman and steiner <laughs> oh fantastic well i have a french horn in the in the wendigo score it's i know you do i know you Fantastic. <laughs> so now, am I going to so get... It's important to use, you know, these, these uh, uh, musicians who still play real things. I'll, I'll tell you, you know what? I, I want to see you work with Volker, the composer Volker. Oh, wow. I want to see you work with him because he thinks so far outside the box with his yeah. originality of instrumentation and, and uh, composition. I would love to see the two of you do something together. Well, I love the notion, and I really think that uh, music, and also music that is akin to sound, is so essential in filmmaking. You know, there's only one.
And that is, you're lucky. You got all but five minutes. You had to hear all but five minutes of my exclusive with Larry Fessenden. Uh, but you will be able to find all of all of Larry's interview uh, along with the review, which is already up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But right now, we're going to switch gears, and we're going to welcome the incredible Bill Haney. Hello, Bill Haney. Hey, Debbie, how are you? Well, I am thrilled to be talking to you. The last time you and I got to talk was back in 2011 for The Last Mountain. I remember it well. I mean... You were a generous spirit. You were generous with me then. Thank you for that. We had a great sit-down. I think we were in the Four Seasons, and uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. was there. I mean, it was fantastic. And 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 yeah. the first time we talked was for The Price of Sugar, which <laughs> that's <Yeah>. dating, yeah. <laughs> dating both of us. Uh, but I got to tell you, Jim Allison Breakthrough... This is your most intimate, your most resonant and relatable piece that you have done, Bill. This is an amazing story, an amazing man, and it's some it's a story that literally affects everybody around the world. Well, he's an extraordinary man. There's no question about it. And cancer is um you know, it, it's kind of like a black nightmare for families across the planet. And the fact that he found a way way to, um, to cure it for many, many, many folks is um, extraordinary, isn't it? When did you, because this is such a long journey that Jim has been on, and I am firmly convinced, knowing some, you know, something about the pharmaceutical ind- industry, the FDA and approvals, um, without his passion and commitment, he was the driving force that pushed uh, this, uh, his T-cell breakthrough. He pushed this through and got it to, eventually, to Merck. Um, it's his passion. And this is something that I don't think we see enough in the industry that you really do need somebody who is going to champion, who believes in it. It isn't going to just hand it off from point A to B to C to D. Um, and we really see his personal commitment here. Well, I think you're right. I think that, uh, and, and, you know, Bristol Myers and the other big drug companies would agree that Jim's, you know, um, willingness to sacrifice for the drug, to stay engaged, you know, his scientific insight, and as you, you say, you know, just his profound passion for patients. Yeah. Made a tremendous difference in this drug. You know, I'm curious, when did you first find out about Jim? I know, you know, you have been an entrepreneur forever. You yourself hold patents, have patents pending. And, of course, two of my favorite things that you do, you are CEO of Dragonfly Therapeutics and Skyhawk Therapeutics. So you right there are heading up you're CEO of two companies that are now at the forefront with cancer research. Um, so I'm curious where you came into the picture with telling Jim's story. Well, thank you. Um, Jim's, you know, Jim's a legend. Uh, and so I've known of his work for some time. And my decision to tell a movie around cancer 
you know, was partially affected by, you know, seeing this extraordinary revolution in treatment, you know, that immuno-oncology generally represents. And partially affected by my perception of where America stands right now. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I sat down to talk about Price of Sugar or The Last Mountain. You know, it's a different America than the polarized country we see before us today. Yep. And I was interested in finding something that all Americans agreed on. And one thing we know is there's no American who's pro-cancer. North, south, east, west, red, blue, we're all against cancer. And a story about how, on the one hand, this innovative, passionate, resilient man, Jim Allison, and his, you know, could find inspiration uh, and imagination and envision a new future for us. But also, on the other hand, the team that he built, you know, um, the scientists that, and clinicians at Memorial Sloan Kettering, the drug developers at Bristol Myers Squibb, the young scientists and research uh, fellows at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these folks played an important role, too. And so it's a story about, you know, building teams to do work of you know, international importance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that felt to me like the story America, you know, needs to hear right now. We can solve issues that we all care about if we, you know, have gifted leaders who are knowledgeable and self-sacrificing and humble in the ways that Jim is and who can build real teams, you know, uh, to common purpose. That's one of the interesting things that we see play out in the way you've constructed the documentary. It's essentially, it's like a football game, passing the ball from one team to the next team to the next team to get to that end goal. And it's, some, it's, it's an inside look that we don't normally get to see. You think that scientists are off somewhere, they're in a lab, they're developing something, that's it, it stays there. But we really see... This passing of the ball from, you know, level one to level two to level three. You know, we're moving ahead, more yardage every time. And, and, I, and I love that because this really picks up after the, the C2LA4 discovery, um, the, the T-cell protein. Uh, and then Jim went further. So I'm fascinated by that whole aspect, but to see the teamwork, the teamwork that got us uh, to this immunotherapy cure is just fascinating. Well, I think you're right. I, you know, I think you're right that, um, you know, leadership is important and it's important to, um, to know when to build, what kind of a team, team to build for what purpose. And, Jim's talent as a scientist, it wasn't the studious, he's not the studious, quiet, scholarly scientist that many folks might imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he's, he's uh, you know, at the beer halls at night and playing harmonica with <laughs> Willie Nelson. Um, but he is able to build a team, you know, um, first to discover C24's role and to keep his lab motivated, and then over time to... Uh, in the struggle, of course, to find the right 
drug company collaborators and clinical partners in hospitals across the country uh, and to keep fighting, mm-hmm. you know, and persuade the FDA to do things differently and um, to persevere. You know, I mean, the fact that the FDA approved the, uh, approved the drug, um, that in and of itself is miraculous. Anybody who doesn't believe in miracles, this is an example of a miracle. Um, because as you know, the FDA is just, it can take decades, decades. Well, the FDA is, uh, you know, certainly can work on being faster. And I think one of the really fun parts of the story is for me anyway, is to actually see a miracle take place. Yeah. Because, um, in the young woman who is given a terminal diagnosis and, Months to live at 22 years old. Yeah, Sharon um, Belvin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, her journey from that to 17 years later sitting with her children, you know, a happy and uh, healthy mom, as the first person who ever gets Jim's treatment, mm-hmm. you know, gives us hope for all kinds of things. And, um, you know, including people we care about who are touched by diseases and now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm curious, was there ever any doubt, because you do take this through relatively chronologically, um, when you built your filmmaking team and you started working on this documentary, was there any doubt that you would go relatively chronologically here? But then I'm more curious how you determined who you'd be interviewing and selecting those people to include in here, talking about Jim and this entire process? Well, Debbie, Lynn, as you know, you know, telling Nobel, a story about Nobel Prize winning science in a way that is available to the average viewer, you know, poses its own challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, I'm not aware of a feature length documentary on a Nobel Prize winning scientist ever. I've never seen one. Um, So I think that that says something about um, A, the challenges of making those kind of films and B, you know, perhaps what could become our growing interest in such such matters. Mm -hmm. Um, So the story, you know, has, as you say, there's a chronological piece of Jim's biography. Mm -hmm. Then, Then there are the animation sequences to under, help make the science easily understandable, and they essentially take place out of time. Right. Um, and then there is the reverse chronological story of Sharon Delvin um, that's you know going in some sense in a different, in an opposite direction. Mm-hmm. It starts with her in the present and goes back to the past. Um. So weaving that together was, um, you know, had challenges, um, and uh, I hope you think we did it well. And, uh, and kudos to Rob. Rob, you know, your editor. Oh, um, yeah. Well, I think that um, <laughs> so you're, in that sense, of course, the editing role was important, and the cinematographer role was important. And I would I'd point out the music. I was going to say, Orton, Mark and Mickey's or, music is fabulous, and... What I love about your collaboration with them is that it's not, for a subject like this, you think it's going to be, 
kind of dour, heavy, dramatic. But no, their music piggybacks the upbeat nature and fun-filled nature of Jim's harmonica playing so that, uh, you know, we stay upbeat through this whole documentary. We are upbeat as we watch this. We never get downtrodden. The music doesn't bring us down. And I think that's so key as an undercurrent. Well, I, I, I think I certainly agree with you. And I, and I think in a lot of ways, it goes back to what you said as we started the conversation. You know, Jim's an explorer. He's an intellectual adventurer. You know, plumbing the secrets of life. You know, what, what greater adventure could there be? Mm-hmm. Um, and his tale is so inspiring, you know, that he, that he came from a foster child in, in South Texas. Um, to winning the Nobel Prize in Medicine, you know, is just an, it's an only, only an American story. Yeah, very much so. You know, and it's funny, when we think about the Nobel and him getting the Nobel call, um, you had, my understanding is you had already finished principal shooting within a day or two of when he would, of when there was talk about when they make those, that all important phone call. Um, which his son you know, captured. It's always fun to talk to you because you know so much. You know, you're, you're of course, exactly right. Um, and uh, we, our last day of photography was, this, was Sunday night in Manhattan. And at 4 o'clock in the morning on Monday, <laughs> he got the phone call from the Nobel Committee saying he won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> I'm so glad that his son <laughs> caught that footage of him on the phone because you see this total look of bewilderment and awe. On Jim's face, and it is so, it is precious to see that. Almost, almost to the point of embarrassment, um, because he's doing this out of love and out of caring. Um, And I don't think he ever, his only accolade is to save lives. So this was like icing on the cake. I have to, I couldn't agree with you more, although I will tell you, much as I love this moment, it's not my favorite moment. Um, so I want to tell you tell my me favorite moment. your in, favorite. Making. So Jim, you know, Jim's mother died, you know, as you know, when he was 11. Mm-hmm. And his father left. And for reasons we can probably imagine, his memories of those years is, is very limited. Yeah. Um, he has all of his life, so when I met him, he only had two pictures of his mother. Mm. One was her college picture, black and white, simple, and, and one was a faded, um, old sepia mm-hmm. single photograph. And he had no memories. And the fact that his father left, um, you know, left him feeling that he had been in some notable way unwanted. And when we were looking for the film, we expected we would find lots of old photographs and uh, maybe some family home movies, but there was absolutely nothing, zero, nothing, mm-hmm. nowhere, nothing. And um, then in a sub-basement of, you know, a crawl space under his old house in Berkeley, we found three uh, rotted, corrosion, um, maligned, old uh, film canisters. And we took them, and they were all destroyed. The film was all 
acid written. Mm. But we found a guy in northern Massachusetts who put together five seconds of these three movies. He rescued five seconds. And Jim never saw the film and had never seen the film when we opened in Texas. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, he saw his mother holding him for the first time. And he saw moving footage of his mother for the first time. And, you know, at age 70, he could look back and see just in the way she held him. I'm sure you remember these moments, how much she loved him. That was beyond obvious. And, and uh, it meant... It meant so much to him, and, uh, and it meant so much to me to see him so filled with joy. Oh, my God. Wow. Because yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, is uh, those archival, the home movies, were they authentic or were, did you have to recreate them? Because uh, I, I see the ones in the ocean, uh, you know, with, th- with three young boys, um, were the was, the, the were, movies with his we say are his mom are his mom right, and that and that's all that there is. Wow! So you know, um, other uh, so we reuse that footage, um, you know, several times. Mm-hmm. And we back the footage up and we do pieces with it, but there are essentially seconds of it. Wow! Amazing, absolutely amazing. You know. There's a lot of archival stuff uh, contained throughout in ter- with the various uh, hospitals and clinics. Did, was there anybody that gave you any, put up any obstacles to you doing interviews and participating in this documentary? Uh, as a general idea, no. People were fantastic with us. You know, there were, um, you know, there were understandable patient privacy questions if you're filming sure. in a hospital and you know, other bits and pieces. But I would say that, uh, you know, I think this is a story that almost everybody involved, and I suspect almost every viewer, you know, finds inspiring and hopeful and on issues that really matter to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people have tended to be very generous with us, um, uh, you know, in supporting helping us make the film. How many hours of interviews did you have that you had to cull down to fit into the documentary? Oh, hundreds. hundreds. <laughs> I know how you how you interview and accumulate, Bill. <laughs> you know, yeah, you you probably if you'd been there, you might have helped me make it a little less. Yeah, I'm right. Um, yeah, we interviewed dozens and dozens of scientists. We filmed dozens of them, most of whom aren't in the film, but who helped us understand the story better. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, back to one of your earlier questions, um, you know, of course, you find that in documentary makers, you find the story in the process to some extent. And so um, people who gave generously at their time and aren't in the movie were still, they helped us find the story. And then, you know, some folks, their circumstance or their memory or their experience, you know, gave the kind of color and insight into Jim. Mm-hmm. You know, because ultimately this is a portrait of a this is a portrait of a creative mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's a passionate creative mind, and I and I do love you know like Louis Lanier. Every time he you have him on camera talking, he gets a, a wicked little smile, one of those knowing Cheshire cat smiles almost. 
as he's relating something about Jim. And that speaks volumes as to the man that Jim Allison is. But what your interview subjects, the you know, the, the science professionals, what they and like Tyler Jackson or Matthew Crummel, what they actually do is they simplify so that this whole film is essentially broken into layman's terms. And then you've got that some great vo- narrative voiceover that Woody Harrelson does that further breaks it down so that the average person can understand what all this means and the process. And that is really, that's one of your great strong suits as a documentarian, Bill, is you have that ability. And to take science like this and break it down, though, that's, that's next level. Well, thank you. I mean, I think thank you very much. It's certainly, um, there are more talented visual stylists and lots of, you know, lots of gifted documentarians who do things I can't imagine. Um, but this piece of trying to make sure that some of the beautiful but complicated things happening around us, you know, are, you know, that aren't in our individual field of expertise, you know, we can still enjoy and admire and be enlightened by, you know, that, that's, uh, that's part of what really interests me. And of course, the, the other thing is, um, and you, you know, we've seen this together. Um, I'm interested in when ordinary people of ordinary circumstances find something heroic in themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you can see it in the, the people in Appalachia who rose up to fight the biggest coal company in the world in West Virginia. You could see it in that, you know, Catholic priest who took on oh. um, human trafficking and uh, modern-day slavery in Price of Sugar, you know, Jim Allison didn't go looking to be a hero. He would have been happy to have been left in Austin, Texas, alone in his lap. Yeah. He's, mm, he's, but he ends up becoming a hero. Yeah, even it, maybe unwittingly and unwillingly, but he is a hero nonetheless. Yeah. Um, I mean, considering I think, that over 600,000 people have already benefited from his work, Wow. Yeah. And it's growing exponentially. I think you're right, by the way. I think that people who go looking to become heroes, you know, you wonder about. Um, and obviously our culture, you know, has this uh, big shining example in Washington of profound and diseased narcissism. And uh, But Jim's not, Jim's a humble, gracious guy. He would, he, 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 he's not looking for anything. The man, the man used to hang out in little in little dive beer bars, play harmonica, have beer, and then have a bourbon once in a while. Come on, that's about as Americana as you can humble and Americana as you can get. <laughs> I, I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. That's my America right there. That's it. That's it. <laughs> so, where, where... Yeah, gets all of it with a cheeseburger and a beer, why would you want to solve it? Right, absolutely. That's, um... that's just it. <laughs> where can everybody see Jim Allison Breakthrough? Well, thank you. It's opening in L.A. Um, and New York uh, and uh, San Francisco this week. Mm-hmm. And then Houston. And, you know, I think it's opening in 50 cities across the country over the next few weeks. And if you go to the movie, uh, I think its website is 
BreakthroughDoc.com. Mm-hmm. Break, I'm sorry, break, BreakthroughDoc. Doc, yes, break, um, BreakthroughDoc.com. Yeah, you, know, you, you can see where it's being uh, distributed, and, um, you know, we're hoping people uh, find it inspiring. This is a film that every American needs to see, that everybody globally needs to see. You know, uh, can't, fighting cancer, just like climate change, it's a glo- they're global issues that everybody, everybody is affected by. And, I think that's right. And uh, it, this, it, to see that there is someone like Jim Allison out there fighting for the little guys and for every little guys, big guys, you know, we couldn't be in better hands. Well, I um, thank you, and of course, I, you know, we we give um, we give all the money that comes from film to charity. So it's not that I have an economic interest. I just think people will find it hopeful in a time when hopefulness is uh, important in America. Yeah, and you know, see something uplifting about this particular solution, but also about how people solve complicated problems in general. Mm-hmm. You know, use the facts, listen to each other, collaborate respectfully. You know, um, these things can help us overcome all kinds of challenges. Yeah. Well, quickly, before I let you go, I must also thank you and congratulate you um, on the film William. You were executive producer. Your, your, your producing partner, Tim Disney, wrote and directed it. Tim Di- I had Tim on the show talking about William. And there again, you, you guys explored something very interesting um, with... Uh, the, the cells, the DNA of a Neanderthal mixed with a humanoid. Uh, another fascinating film that I highly suspect well, is not too far from becoming a reality. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it happened in China this year. So, the first uh, clone of a human. So, um, you just keep delivering more and more and more intriguing stuff, Bill. Well, so sweet of you to say, and really nice to get a chance to catch up with you. Um, you know, I've been a little slow about making this one, so thank you for remembering the last one. And uh, I do think Timmy did a really nice job on William, and uh, that, you know, um, you know, I, I helped uh, drive the taxi cab, but he built the entire car and put everything cool inside it. Well, and I thought that, as I told him when he was on the show, uh, just absolutely amazing and fantastic job that just opens the mind and the heart. And yeah, this, but this is what you were known for doing. This is what you guys do as filmmakers. And it's something well, that we, very sweet of you. It's something we're, we're that we just, need. We're trying. Well, keep trying. I need more. David Lynn, I hope we cross paths in person sometime soon, and I hope you've been very, very well. Oh, you too, Bill, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. All the best. God bless. Take care now. Bye-bye. And that was writer-director Bill Haney, Jim Allison Breakthrough, opens 50 Cities this Friday. Um, I can't encourage you enough to see it. It's an amazing story about an amazing scientist and uh, he's not what you expect as a scientist, as we said. You know, takes a shot of bourbon, plays the harmonica, plays the harmonica with Willie Nelson, actually. Um, so 
you see a man that truly does what he does because he cares about people. And uh, he just happens to advocate one of the most important things uh, affecting the world today. That is all the time we have today. Uh, next week, I'm very excited. Veteran actor Brett Cullen is joining us live. Uh, so until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.